And we're going to... Uh, I should say this, I haven't said this for years. If you have your Bible, open it, but now I guess it's turn it on and plug it in and boot it up. And There's a lot of phrases to use. But we're going to look at Acts chapter 5. <coughs> I think one of the... You know, Fred actually sort of gave my sermon away when he started. He didn't know what I was really speaking about. But he said, what about worshipping the Lord with a knee brace on? And in one sense... The, the beginning of the church because we're looking at the uh, early church and how it began, the embryonic sort of moments of the, of the Christian church as it began to spark and it was the most unusual sparking. It was the most unusual people that God used and it certainly wasn't the product of people gathering together to work out how they can save the world and it wasn't a strategy that probably any human being would come up with as being something that would be trustworthy. Because a lot of it didn't make sense. And one of the things that uh, we struggle with is this whole area of our logic and our what makes sense to us and how God works. You'll never bring those two together. If you bring them together too tightly, you want to be scared. Because you might just have reduced God down to how you want him to be. Because deep in the human heart and the spirit is the desire to be God. And when I am God, then I control my environment. And the way human beings shrink God down to what they want them to be is to build faith around belief systems. Doctrines is what we call it, a theology. Where you work out how God works and, this, and then says, this is, this is who we are. We are the church of this and this is what we believe and this is what we don't believe. And so we have many, many, many different streams of churches that actually are testimony to our unbelief. God tolerates it because he's gracious. But it's not really a healthy sign. God, there's so much that's mysterious about God and that's why when God reveals himself in Jesus, we want to pay attention to Jesus because Jesus is the place where most of God is revealed. And he reveals God as a God who's relational Jesus didn't spend a lot of time talking theology or doctrine. It matters in some form, but at the end of the day, he said, love is what matters. And love is manifest in relationship, not in doctrine. You, can, you want to experience it? Try and join a church, and you'll see the challenge. It's easy to talk about love. It's easy to stand up here and say, I love you all but actually entering into relationship and working it out together is very challenging because it brings up so many things that are not resolved in me or you. And so those early disciples, one of the things they had come to terms with maybe was they had tracked with Jesus on earth, been bemused much of the time by what he did and how he did things. He he totally stretched their minds, he stretched their hearts, he stretched their agendas again and again and again. You know, you have Peter, who, who was the one who argued with Jesus all the time. He said, not this way, not this way, surely you Because their whole expectation, their whole understanding was when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring about a political change and the Roman oppressors, who were, I've said before, were like ISIS the Roman oppressors were the ones who they were under bondage to. They had been under bondage for years and years and years and years and years. It was unbelievable to them that they would have another exodus and be set free. 
And so their priority was, if God loves us and if God is real, he's going to set us free from this bondage. And we very often are like that. If God just sets me free from this, then it'll be. And he came in the form of the servant who was a peasant from Galilee. And he did signs and wonders. He touched people and they were healed. And they were, it was remarkable because they, he says, if you want to see God, look at me. And they go, how audacious. That's, that's so irreligious because we've grown up to believe that God is up there and we are down here and he, he, we are not worthy, but the priests are worthy. And so we've got to go through the priests and then, and then maybe something will happen, but we've got to give all these sacrifices because we're so bad. And they lived in this fear and oppression all the time. And when Jesus came and the disciples were released after Pentecost, what you see is this tension that reflects the human heart. And the tension is, I want to get this down in some kind of understandable system. And God is saying, I want you to be my children. At the same time, you have to work some things out. So I look at these early disciples. I have uh, four words that I would put off after them as I, as I look at their, their lives as they've They've come out of, uh, they've been filled with God's Spirit. Oh, I want to take these rabbit trails, as Randy Clark talks about all the time. You know, They've been filled with God's Spirit, which means they've been filled with God's presence and power. A revelation that He is the living God that actually transformed them. It meant that when they laid hands on the sick, they went under Ill, any illusion that it was, it was them. It was Jesus living through them. He said He would do it. There's a whole branch of the church that says nothing ever like that happened since the disciples, which is not in the Bible, but a lot of people live like that. The Holy Spirit is not for signs and wonders today. It ended because God sent the Bible, which is not in the Bible, interestingly enough. But it is a testimony to the desire of human beings to always shrink God down back into a system where I have control and I have status. And if I have enough education, then I'll be the top dog and then you listen to me. It's just so ingrained in us. And it's ingrained in you. It doesn't matter where you are. That desire to be in charge. And I'm going to illustrate for that in a minute. But the, the thing that the disciples, if I were giving words of description, I'd say they were people of passion. They were people of boldness. They were people of conviction. They were people of action. And they had become, I think of all things, they didn't have big theologies. I think they were still working out. They didn't know what the resurrection meant. They didn't know the Trinity. They had never heard of that word, the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They, look, they worked that out in the fourth century. You see, in, a, in one sense you need it, in another sense you don't. So the further you get away from the action of Jesus, the more they get into, we have to bring this under control and describe it and put words around it. And the problem is they end up with this very eloquent words, but no power. Because often the people who like all the words don't know how to have the relationship. And God, it, he won't allow that. We allow it, but he won't. It just begins to die. It's called religion. And I think we live in that tension all the time. I don't think there's an easy answer. I think awareness is helpful. So, you know, Paul, you remember, he went to a church and said, I came to see whether you were just words or whether there was power with your words as well. And so these disciples were beginning to, I mean, they were, they were taking a couple of steps. They healed a man at the temple gate, John and uh, Peter and John. 
they healed the man of the temple and all hell broke loose. Because he danced beside them and people started saying, what was this? And they said, it's not us, it's Jesus living in us. And they said, how dare you talk about Jesus? And the, the religious leaders got angry. And so began this journey of anger and frustration and liberation. Because these disciples, with all their lack of education, kept on jumping up again and saying, but we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And the, and, the, and the authorities were saying, we command you not to do this. And they said, but we can't listen to you. Because God's already said we should do it. And when we do it, power is released. And so this angst grew up. And in a sense, one of the things they're thinking about this morning is, how easy it is, is it to shut us down? What do we expect of the life of following Jesus? Is the life of following... You know, I was Googling the, you know, the, uh, the courage of the, the, the uh, disciples and... I got a bunch of um, YouTube videos talking about persecution of Christians and, I, and that we are living in an age where more Christians are persecuted today than ever in history. And a couple of videos that I kind of wanted to show you but I didn't think we had the stomach for. Um, three men in a street and they were just being beaten. And the one guy kept getting up and people would come up behind and smack him with a wooden mallet or boom. These were Christians. They were just being beaten up because they were Christian. And apparently in about 133 of 190, how many countries there are, Christians are persecuted today. And so we go, well, we're not persecuted here, thank God. I, I actually think we are. I think we persecuted with comfort. I think we persecuted with toys. I think we persecuted with time. I think we persecuted with money. I think we, per we, we are just taken out in a very, very different way. But it's just as deadly. And so these disciples were beginning to learn that the Jesus whom they followed and who was crucified because he dared to say he was the Son of God, as he lived in them, they were attracting the same kind of problems. And they had to decide, ah, we're not going to go that way. But they had a memory, and they had a memory of what happened when they did decide that. At the cross, they had decided that. And they had been led through a healing process of we denied the very thing that brought us life and we just experienced the death of our denial post-crucifixion. And then God came back in the risen Jesus and breathed life into them again and said, now you know both who you are and who I am. Let's start again. And I will be with you and I will live in you and I will do in you what you possibly cannot possibly do yourselves. And that's where the tension comes because intellectually we cannot really answer how it works that you lay hands on somebody they get healed or you ask God's spirit to touch some life and they, their heart begins to change in terms of their aspect on life. There's mystery to it. All we know is where Jesus is present things happen. And I love the phrase that says truth is a person. Truth is not a set of beliefs. Because if you're like me, my set of beliefs change. Because they're not written in stone. This is where I am today because this is what I know, this is what I've experienced, this is what I think. But my anticipation is that it will change in the next five years. I hope it does. Because I, I'm, I want to grow and I want to learn more about who God is, who Jesus is. And the only way you learn about who God is and who Jesus is, you start where you are and you ask the next question. 
That's why Alpha is a good place to come. I guarantee you none of us know everything there is to know. And so a course like Alpha is an opportunity for us to walk along some, alongside both ourselves and somebody else and say, let's learn this together. Oh, but you know so much more than I do. Eh, I've got lots of blank places. I guarantee you, if we go with humility, we will find God will use that to teach us all kinds of things and also cause us to uh, be, you know, answer questions or explain things to somebody and then you find, oh, I thought I knew that, but it wasn't. When I actually have to say it out loud, I'm not sure I do understand it. And then you go, you know what, I don't understand either. Let's, let's, let's look this up or let's work this out or let's talk to someone. And your faith will grow. It's the old adage, you have to teach in order to learn. What was the key thing for those disciples that enabled them to go out into the marketplace? In 5 verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. I mean, people were afraid to join them because of what might happen. I spent years like that with the church and the Holy Spirit. I used to be afraid of it because I was afraid of, I just was afraid. And I bet you, you know, some of us are here. I was afraid of what God would do. And I, I don't think I had learnt enough that he was kind and he was gentle. And I think people can often misinterpret and become unkind and not gentle and get in the way of God's spirit. But God's spirit will never pull you up in public and embarrass you. He will never give you a word that belittles you. He will never agree uh, with, with uh, negativity as much as you would like him to and I would like him to. He will always call us up into something else and say, well, what about this? And so these disciples, as they were following Jesus, were learning that he was real. But what is the thing that is at the core of it? And I want to suggest to you, nothing changes until, well, let's look at that the high priest and all his associates, members of the party, were filled with jealousy because of what they saw these disciples doing. These disciples were not only talking about God, they were actually sharing his love and his power in a way that they had no idea about. I remember sitting in uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and there were Coptic uh, priests and there were about 10 of them. And I went to a service and they were all seated in rows. And the one was just sweating his brow. They were all fat and they were all very important. And I thought, we're actually seated within 20 meters of one of their purported uh, places where the tomb was. And religion just is everywhere. And there are seven lamps at the entrance to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem because they represent seven strands of the Coptic Church because they can't agree on who should run the church. And they have a Muslim family who open and unlock the church every day. Because the Christians can't agree. Sad. But them is us. I mean, how easily are we offended? How easily are you offended? How easily do you get your back up on something? It's amazing. And they started talking, they arrested the apostles and put them in jail. And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about his new, this new life. This new life. What challenges me as I read these words is we got into jail, an angel sent, sent 
was sent by God to let them out. And an angel was only sent by God on very rare occasions to rescue them. They would all be persecuted and they would all die under the sword of crucifixion, except John. And before John died as an old man, he had already been tortured with hot oil. All of the disciples suffered. But on this occasion, an angel set them free because God was not ready for them to be persecuted beyond measure because they had a a mission to do. There's mystery in this. Do you have room for angels? I don't have a clue about angels. I don't understand them. But they're all through the Bible, so I believe them. Some of you can see angels here. I can't, but I would love to. And I welcome angels. We're commanded not to talk to angels, by the way. That's a new age thing. You're commanded to talk to Jesus. Jesus talks to angels. Angels are not at our beck and call. They're at the beck and call of God, the Father. And these, an angel set these guys free. And in my sort of Western comfort, I go, well, they've been set, I've been set free so I can go home. And I can have peace. And he says, no, I'm setting you free so you can go back into the exact place you were arrested last time. You go, well, that doesn't sound like God. He says, yeah, maybe it does. What's he doing? He's saying, I'm going to declare my kingdom through you. So what had transformed them? I think that one of the things that transformed them through the experience of the cross and the resurrection was a, a real deep understanding of their own sinfulness. And what I mean by, you can't have a deep experience of the power and presence of Jesus on a sustained basis in your life unless you have a deep and sustained awareness of your unworthiness. Because, and if you don't have it, if you're not in right relationship with Jesus, when you have a deep understanding of your unworthiness, it leads you into condemnation. And it leads you into oppression. And it leads you, I'm no good. When it's under the Spirit of God, it's merely a revelation to say, apart from you, I can do nothing. It's called humility. It's called desperate hunger. It's called openness to the Spirit of God. It means, I know that as long as I walk this earth, I'm never going to be in the place of feeling I've arrived. Because I'm going to have the sense of I'm not worthy, but he is. Let me illustrate this to you, because very often you can think, um, I've arrived because I've been a Christian for 10 years, or I haven't sinned terribly, or whatever. And uh, that's usually just a deception. But you don't want to be discouraged either. The greatest saints in the church, the closer they got to God, the more unworthy they felt. So we're learning how to deal with our unworthiness in order that God's Spirit can make us worthy. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So my expectation is the longer I walk with Jesus and the deeper I walk with Him, the more I'm going to be aware of the stuff that still needs to be dealt with in me. And that's part of growth. But I'll illustrate this to you because I'm not sure we... I think we get upset when you say something like, we are at our core, we are broken, sinful people. And without Jesus, we are lost. And that's not a one-off thing, that's an ongoing thing. Think of it this way. If you're dealing with cancer and you're looking at cancer research, what do they do? They don't look at big pictures so much. they, They go down to minute 
invisible DNA samples, things that you and I don't even know exist. They're looking for that particular cell that's been, I don't even know the language, but you know what I'm saying? At the core, this is the one that causes that. This cell does not actually integrate with the others and it continues to multiply and it becomes cancer. Because actually, I do know this, the hallmark of cancer is the cell that's in rebellion against the body. But the research to find cures is done at a very microscopic level. And I want to suggest to you that the one thing Jesus revealed was he said, if you want to know the problem with humanity, it is sin. At the microscopic level that makes and infects and pollutes everything about human beings. And I have come to actually be the antidote. My blood and my cross actually will set you free from that sin. Now, God can set us free from the sin at the microscopic level, but it's got to be worked out in our lives, and that's what spends the rest of our lives working on. I read a book, I have been reading a book recently that I've mentioned to a few people. It's called Sandcastles and Skyscrapers by a guy called Jake Hamilton. Never heard of him before. And I'm reading this because I want a reaction from you. Not, you you know... um, So let me read it, and and I, I want you to listen to what goes on inside you as I read it. The great tragedy in our generation is not homosexuality or divorce rates or abortion or racial prejudice or leadership or the economy. The greatest tragedy in our generation is the church's apathy toward family and our lack of knowledge of God. We don't pursue him, so we don't know him. Therefore, we maintain a relationship with him, but we can't maintain a relationship with others. When we do not know how to maintain relationships, we simply move to what we believe works, control, manipulation, and fear. We convince others that they need us more than we need them. We drag them along until we have no further use for them, and they are soon abandoned for a newer model. In divorce, it is called irreconcilable differences. In the body of Christ, we just call it church hopping. God desires us for us to know and protect his heart and the heart of those he loves. This is the part that I want you to listen to. Let me give you an example. I know the answer to ending abortion, ending sexually transmitted diseases, and eradicating almost the entire AIDS virus from the earth while emptying the foster care system and clearing out orphanages all in one generation. Here's the kicker. You won't even have to vote on it. In fact, it won't require the government at all. How? The answer is already in the Bible, and it's just three steps. Don't have sex until you're married. Once you are married, stay married for the rest of your life, loving your spouse in such a way that he or she is propelled into his or her God-given destiny. Then love your children in such a way that they become radical lovers of Jesus and repeat the process you modeled for them in your household. Everything in me and us probably reacts to that as simplistic. But I want to suggest that we react, react it to it because it's simplistic, because we want to manage our sin rather than acknowledge our sin. Because we go, it's simplistic because it's impossible. I'm already divorced. The fact that I'm divorced doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right at all. There's no excuse. I am guilty. I demonstrate my sinfulness. What he says, I believe, is absolutely true. At the, at the bottom of everything, we are in a world where even people who call themselves Christians are managing sin. 
making excuses for it. Now, I'm not talking about judgment. And I think one of the things the disciples touched was that when they met with Jesus, they had encountered truth in a way that transformed them beyond their understanding. They just said, with what we have and what we know in him and what we've experienced through the resurrection, something has changed in us that we want to go after. Because we have spent so many years under these men who control us and there is no life under them. And we've spent so many years under the Romans who control us and there is no life under them. And when we walk with Jesus, we have this amazing experience that with the the religious authorities and the Romans breathing down our necks, we were free. And we're going to learn how to be a people with knee braces who worship. And so I believe that's what drove these men, that when they came out into the marketplace, they said, there's nothing else we can do but to speak of what we've seen and heard, to trust Jesus. And so they went back out. And the authorities were the ones who were controlling. The authorities were the ones who were angry. The authorities are the ones who said, we commanded you not to speak, and you blaming us, they said to them, because of the crucifixion of Jesus. Because one of the things people do when they don't agree with you is they blame. I would say to all of us, let's stop blaming. There's quite a lot of murmuring going on in this church right now. Stop it. I really say that under the Holy Spirit. Stop it. The most cowardly, non-strong thing to do is to murmur. It is insidious, it's poisonous, it's not Jesus, and even if you were right, it would be the wrong thing to do. So stop it. It's like a cancer. And I'll tell you what, you wear it and you look ugly. And I know what that's like because as a pastor I get disappointed a lot and I get irritated a lot and I get frustrated a lot and I say, oh, they should be this and they... And it, all it does is it makes me ugly. I'm still working on it. I don't think it'll ever go away. But I want it to get better. I want to at least own it. The further you are away from relationships, the more spiritual you'll be. The closer you are in relationship, the more work you will do. It's just the way it works. And God will show you the things that he's working out in you. But the core of everything is beginning to understand that when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And these disciples, I think, had begun to believe that at their core. And I just want to ask us, you know, if you want to see life emerge in you, what's the relationship with Jesus like? Is he the way? Do you manage your sin or do you actually acknowledge it? Do you understand that Christianity is not about making a few things right? It's about a transformation at the deepest level that's a lifetime journey. We need one another in order to make that journey. And that journey needs to take place in the marketplace as well as in here. And those disciples were told by the status quo of their, their I'm finishing here, that the, they, would, they were told by the religious leaders of their day, they said, we command you to stop, otherwise we'll put you in jail, otherwise we will kill you. And the testimony of the early church is they said, well then you'll have to kill us. In fact, if you look at the end of this chapter, what do they say at the end? It's remarkable. They said, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus the Messiah. That is so irritating to people who want to be controlling. I'm not meaning that everything 
we do is all okay. Sometimes we are irritating. But at its core, what convicted people of the love of Jesus was the lifestyle of the people who followed Jesus. Not the theology, but the power that they had, the way they went into hard places, and the way they conducted themselves. And people listened to them because they were hungry for authentic spiritual awakening. They wouldn't put words around it like that. So I want to ask you two questions. One is, what does your following Jesus cost you? What happens when a cost comes up? This is not a big guilt trip. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, what does it cost you? And how quickly are you shut down? How quickly does it take you to go back into jail? Um, we, we heard some very sad news last week of, uh, um, about one of our ex I am second guys who got arrested and he's back in jail. And I'm not going to say any more because I want to honor him because he's a very broken man. But the thing that is so painful is that he's actually, I mean, he spoke to me about it and I do want to reconnect with him. But, but you know, he said, I'm more comfortable in jail. I feel safer there because he doesn't know how to live in the outside world anymore. And there are lots of us like that that we live inside ourselves in a jail and Jesus says, I've come to set you free. And you go, but if I'm free, it's scary. And he says, well, I'll help you be bold. We'll take one step at a time. What does it cost you to follow Jesus? How is that expressed? If people are watching you, how do they know that you're a Christian? What does it cost you? Where are you inconvenienced? Where does somebody look at you and say, it doesn't make sense what you do? It doesn't make sense why you would waste your time there. And you say, I do it because I love Jesus and he loves these people. So it's not really a sacrifice, it's just a pleasure. What else would I do? And then when you come up against resistance, or you come up against somebody saying, stop it in the name of Jesus, how quickly do you just back off and say, oh, okay. Or do you quietly just actually say, no, this is where I am. So I want to pray for us this morning that we would be a people of conviction, of passion, of action, that are unashamed to stand in the marketplace, wherever that is, but also know deeply inside ourselves that we are sinners. We are saints in Jesus. He's made us saints. But the consequences of sin are things that we have to work out for the rest of our lives on earth. In our weakness, he is made perfect. Let's stand. Father, I just pray for one thing that we've talked about this morning to, to go deep into us. Thank you that you're not here. You're certainly not here waving a big stick. And you're not here condemning us. There's a huge difference between revelation and conviction and condemnation. I can say the same word to you and you could say I'm being condemned. Or you can say that's convicting. So Father, I speak against anything that sounds condemning. And I break it in the name of Jesus and I just speak for conviction and revelation. And that you will continue to teach us how to walk with sensitivity with you and with one another. We confess to you our sinfulness. As David says, there's nothing, there's nothing clean in me. Cleanse my heart, O Lord. And where there are things that attitudes or, or behaviors or things that are getting in the way of walking with you, we just bring them to you and say, Father, forgive me. And for some of us, we might even say, you know, I don't even want to let go of this. And he says, well, you can ask me to want to. So thank you that you've come for the sinners. And thank you that as you touch our lives, we become saints. 
But as Paul says, we're working out our salvation. We're working it out and walking it out. And I speak over us where there is fear and negativity. And we just break it over each of our lives. And we call faith up, rising up, that we would become bold and impassioned for you, Jesus. And Jesus might stand before you right now and and he wants to grow in his relationship with you and he just says, I love you and I love to spend time with you and you might go, I don't even know you're around. So ask him to give you an awareness. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters for, for revelation and growth in relationship that Jesus, you will become good news and a friend and let us bless the relationships that you want to have with each of us. And if you feel like you're in jail right now, you could be in jail for all kinds of things, but just say, Jesus, I want to step out of this jail. I don't want to be in this jail anymore. So I just break the things that have caused us to go into jails. That is not the will of the Father. Speak freedom to you in the name of Jesus. Step out and walk into freedom. And you'll say, well, I don't feel free and nothing's changed. He said, well, walk out and see. It will change. Freedom is your gift in Jesus. Every time, all the time. I speak courage over you. And maybe you've been shut down, or you're intimidated, or you're afraid of what somebody else will say. I just break that off you in the name of Jesus. Rise up. Be bold. In love, be bold. You have a voice. You have a destiny. You're a son and daughter of the living God. And where you're rebellious, and you will not bow the knee, Tell him. And Father, I pray that you bring us to our knees in every area of our life that we surrender to you in order that we could be filled with you. As I prepare for communion, just place your hand on the shoulder of those next to you and ask God's blessing on them. Just courage to rise up. Don't speak to them, just bless them in the name of Jesus. Just let God's spirit flow through you to them and receive from them. And just ask that the mystery of his spirit will make up in them everything they don't have in themselves. Thank you, Jesus, that you're good. I was going to lift up a glass of water and say, you know, if you want simplicity, this is it. Life is found in water. Without it, we can't survive. And it's the same with Jesus. He is the water. And you have to drink it. You can't admire it. You can't swim in it. You've got to drink it. If you don't drink it, you don't live. Same is true with God's Spirit. You can admire it, you can read about it, you can draw pictures about it, you can sing songs about it. Him, not it. But if you don't allow him in and he's come that he might fill you, you are his servant, he's not your servant. But he's so willing and he's so welcoming. 